passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to your UFC 285 post show here at postwrestling.com. I am John Pollock, and he is Eric Marcotte himself, who is just full of energy today. He was hitting me up all morning. I can't wait to do this post show. I've got a great night's sleep, and I'm so excited here on this Sunday afternoon, which Sunday's at one. This is the time slot that post wrestling owns when it comes to MMA coverage. Sunday's at one. Is there is there anything else you would rather be doing, Eric? I mean, for for me, it's an odd time, but for yourself on a weekend like this, I mean, it's really the lone period in which you don't have to be uh, covering something or another. Uh, th- there aren't really any free weekends anymore, are they? They're always just jam packed <laughs> with everything. Absolutely not. There is nothing. There's no such thing as as a free weekend anymore. And I can state, listen, I I know there is the immediacy of doing these shows right afterwards. But man, last night I was fully mentally, I was ready for five rounds of John Jones and Cyril gone, and I was completely fine with it because the idea of doing an hour show after that. And then another like half hour, 45 minutes of uploading it. I'm sorry, folks. I've got a birthday coming up. The numbers are just getting higher. And uh, John Pollock is getting old. I just can't do it. Eric, you are you are the youth. But man, those those post shows with Phil that would go till three in the morning. I'm sorry. I think those took uh, at least months off my life. Hey, I can relate. Some of those were rough on me as well. But, uh, you know, hey, one in the afternoon. This is a beautiful time for almost everybody. That is right. We're going to be chatting a lot about John Jones on this show, I will assume, and we will open it up to you as well. If you want to throw in any super chats, you are welcome to do so as I will be uh, looking over the chat room. So welcome to everyone that is uh, joining us. Uh, hopefully, Brandon from New Jersey is conscious at this hour or he's uh, listening after the fact. So let's talk about the main event, Eric. And you know, this is one that I talked about this week. It would be one that if I was someone that often wagered on MMA, this would be a fight I would be staying away from, as silly as that sounds after the fact. But I just had way too many questions about John Jones. What was your estimation of what version of John Jones we would see? And how surprised slash impressed were you with the performance we got on Saturday night? Yeah, honestly, I wasn't expecting great things. Uh, a three-year layoff for John Jones after a number of uh, rather unimpressive outings. I- I'm also extremely high on Cyril Gaon, so I was actually mm-hmm. favoring Gaon going into this fight, despite, despite what we saw when Francis Ngannou took him down for the final three rounds of their fight last year. I, I was looking at that, and I said to myself, you know what, Gaon probably didn't expect Ngannou to start wrestling with him. I mean, Ngannou is an extremely strong individual, uh, but there's never been any uh, displays of uh, poor grappling from him in the past. So I, I was favoring Cyril Gaon going to this fight, but um, well, we'll get into it. Uh, things did not play out as I expected it to. No, it went all of uh, two minutes and four seconds of the first round, and Gaon immediately, the first strike of the entire night uh, of of the fight is a kick right to the groin of John Jones as he is officially welcomed to the UFC's heavyweight division. And Jones uh, recovers very quickly and he's controlling the center. And all of a sudden he is able to clinch up with, with gone, take his back and he gets him down. And it was a key to the fight was getting gone down. And then you see Jones, almost trying to mount him against the fence and he's getting his arm around the neck, but you don't think he fully has it. And then all of a sudden it's pretty tight and gone is tapping. But from the angle you're watching at it, it doesn't even look like the choke is all that applied um, fully. The replay certainly did indicate how deep he had it, but it's over in two minutes and four seconds. John Jones is the UFC heavyweight champion. And it's interesting because part of the allure of this fight, 
Eric, was all the questions we had about John Jones, how he was going to adapt to heavyweight, how he would look at heavyweight. And he looked fantastic in these two minutes. But I think a lot of those questions will still exist for his next heavyweight contest, which I think adds to the curiosity on top of a dominant performance here that will make his his follow up that much bigger, uh, providing it's it's a level of a of a steep Miochik or or higher. And I don't know if you're getting much higher than uh, Miochik at this point in terms of name value. Because uh, Francis Ngannou no longer exists in the UFC. That is what we learned this week. He, uh, the new thing, he was scared. Uh, he's never coming back. Francis Ngannou, he would, uh, the floor would have been wiped by John Jones. I mean, man, the, the just destruction of Francis Ngannou was in full force this week by Dana White and John Jones too. Uh, yeah, Francis Ngannou has been completely retconned from UFC history. His career never happened. He, he was never a champion or a, a fighter of importance. Uh, forget about him. Never think about him again. That Remember, they said this This was the tougher fight for John. This was the tougher fight for him was uh, Cyril Gan. The man who was out-wrestled by Francis Ngannou was the tougher fight. Uh, yeah, and Dana went as far as to say in the post-fight press conference that you will never see Francis Ngannou in the UFC again. Uh, which we'll is the most, the case, but. which is the strongest evidence that there's a good shot of him returning if Dana is adamantly saying never. Oh, International Fight Week, put your money on it. Uh, Ngannou, hey, it was a short fight, only two minutes, but we did get to see a bit of John Jones on the feet here, and I thought it was very telling that so if you look through Cyril Gan's fights in the UFC, how many of his opponents just absolutely freeze when they're on the feet with him? And this includes heavy hitters, dangerous guys like Francis Ngannou himself or uh, Derek Lewis, guys who just had nothing to offer Cyril Gan on the feet. John Jones did not fight with any of that fear. He was constantly marching forward, pressuring forward, throwing strikes, making Cyril Gan uh, very uncomfortable. And that's what ultimately led to him uh, getting the takedown after a big swing and a miss from Cyril Gan. So. I thought that was actually a, a very telling sign of Jones' comfort level. And it, through, throughout fight week, he would say a lot of things like, uh, I think this is the best matchup for me in the top five at heavyweight. This is a complete mismatch. Jones said that multiple times. And you kind of think that's just him talking. But when you saw the strategy in which he fought with, I think it's very evident that he believed that to be the case. Where does this place Cyril gone? Because I would say of... Of big fight situations for Cyril Gaon, this is the second one where I, I think it it certainly is a pretty devastating loss. I mean, to fight Francis Ngannou where your opponent had a very compromised knee and you were out-wrestled by them, that's one thing. And then getting blitzed here by John Jones. Granted, it's John Jones, but at the same time, I think that this does set Cyril Gaon back many steps in the UFC heavyweight division. Like I would say, as long as John Jones is your heavyweight champion, like I, I can't see any chance of Cyril gone fighting for this title during this John Jones era. Well, never say never at heavyweight because in this division, Cyril gone could probably just get one big knockout win. And all of a sudden, Oh, he's the only legitimate contender in the entire top 15, but I would have no interest in seeing the fight again. I can say at the very least until gone shows a noticeable improvement in his defensive wrestling. And I don't how think John Jones would have any but, interest in, in this again. Like, no. what, how, how do you get up for a rematch with a Cyril gone? Even if he goes through a, you know, a three, four fight win streak of impressive stoppages. I just can't imagine a John Jones being interested in a fight like that. I can't either. And I think Gunn will have to really prove himself against the division's tougher wrestlers in his next few fights if he wants to remain the top contender in the division. Like, he's going to have to go through the likes of Romanov and Blades and maybe even Miocic if he were to beat John Jones. Like, these are the high level wrestlers he's going to have to prove himself and improve because this is a very clear hole in his game now after these two title fights for him. We also had some uh, drama before the fight where they were coming in and John has his feet taped up, including his uh, his infamous toe injury from the Chael Sonnen fight 10 years ago. And the commission is coming over. They're checking on the tape and they end up having to take a portion of it off and cutting another portion. And I mean, this is taking up some time, but then, you know, all's well that ends well. He gets into the cage and the fight begins. Afterwards, at the press conference, he's explaining this and that he always tapes his feet. And he was stating if they 
would not let him tape his feet. He was not going to fight. So he was glad that they avoided disaster. And I could only have imagined if this fight would have been uh, protested by John Jones because of this tape issue. But um, it sounded like John Jones was very adamant about this tape not being uh, eliminated from his repertoire. I would have absolutely loved to see that, that UFC main events get canceled at the final moments because the doctors cut John Jones's toe tape. That would have been the all-time height of heavyweight MMA. I could only have imagined, but uh, that... That was uh, a mere uh, blip in the road, uh, as we see, as uh, John Jones did compete. He looked fantastic in this fight. And now, essentially, what did you think about how John Jones carried himself uh, throughout the week and as well afterwards? I mean, are you looking uh, any deeper into this version of John Jones and as well your your expectation level about how active John Jones is going to be? He is he is saying all the things that he wants to fight regularly, but are you looking at, you know, the the amount of John Jones fights is maybe a, a more limited number left in his career? In terms of the amounts of fights he has left, I think it's impossible to say. Uh, I think a loss would dramatically change or impact that one way or the other. In fact, a loss could actually keep him going longer to uh, perhaps redeem himself in a way. I think if he just continues to dominate his opponents in two minutes as he did to Ciro Gone. I think it could be a shorter run for him. I can't imagine uh, John Jones sticking around to fight the likes of, I don't know, who's on the rise at heavyweight right now, Tai Tuivasa. Jones versus Tuivasa, UFC 300. I I don't quite see it. But uh, I I think the Stipe Miocic fight will tell us a lot. Uh, We'll have a better sense of what John Jones' future in the division will be like after that one. That was the fight that was... You know, clearly the direction coming out of this that was proposed to Jones. Uh, they, they cut to Stipe in the crowd who could not have looked more, uh, uninterested in anything going on at the time. And then an all time legendarily bad interview in the back where poor Megan O'Levy had to interview this guy. And here's the thing. Stipe has. Uh, you know, he was on the MMA hour not too long ago and basically stating he wanted this fight at this event. And they went with Cyril gone and he just couldn't understand like why they went with him uh, over over Stipe. This is why, because this as much as you might have your credentials or your claims to being the greatest heavyweight of all time. There is still a selling aspect of this, and Stipe was terrible on this card in terms of generating your interest. This was all on the side of John Jones selling this fight, and to back up my statement here, here's John Jones at the post-fight press conference addressing Stipe and selling you on this fight. I say it, I say it respectfully to Stipe. I would take time off from being a firefighter right now, and I mean that with all due respect. Um my whole world is going to be focused on him. This is the biggest opportunity in my life to beat the heavyweight goat. And I'm going to give it everything I got. Absolutely everything I got. Stipe's talking about the fact that he's heavier than me right now. Uh, you know, his head, his head's already in the wrong spot if he thinks weightlifting is going to beat me. He'll never be younger than he is right now. He'll never be faster. And, um, I'm going to not only beat Stipe Miocic, I'm going to finish Stipe Miocic before the championship rounds. There's John Jones stating he will finish Stipe Miocic. Uh, we don't have a clip of Stipe, uh, but let me recap. Stipe, do you want this fight? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Are you going to be ready for this fight? Yeah. Yeah, I'm ready. That, that was a pretty good impression. Your English yeah. may have been actually a, a bit too understandable to, to, be, to be a good Stipe Miocic uh, impression, but... The game with the Stipe interview is to see how many words can you get out of his answer. And uh, to his credit, the person that has gotten the most out of him is Ariel Hawani, who just has a great ability to interview Stipe Miocic. But uh, I will put myself in those that have interviewed Stipe, and it it is very tough. And I certainly felt for Megan O'Levy here. Um, Like, for a lot of people, like, they are watching this. And, like, think about a a fan that has not – seen John Jones like three years is a long time maybe this is your first time seeing him and at the end of it you're supposed to be excited to see this fight and if you are not familiar with a Stipe Miocic um did this guy blow the roof off of the place of man I can't wait to see this fight he did not it's and that's a huge part of this game 
And I think it's one that Stipe is not going to subscribe to. And that's fine. I'm not going to ever tell people to be disingenuous or put on an act. But at the same time, by you giving up that element of selling a fight, you also have to understand why you do get passed up for opportunities. Uh, exactly. And on top of that, Stipe Miocic has been a very inactive fighter throughout these last few years. He hasn't his only fight, this is off the top of my head, but I believe his only fight in the last two years was that loss to Francis Ngannou. So inactivity will be held against him. Uh, it makes sense that they're doing the Jones fight next just from a name value perspective, even what, with what you said regarding his own lack of promotion. Stipe Miocic is a more popular fighter and a bigger name than more or less everybody in the division. It's not a very talent stacked or uh, headliner worthy or whatever term you want to use. Uh, division the top 15 is kind of barren i do think you can market the greatest light heavyweight of all time versus the greatest heavyweight in ufc history it's a big fight for international fight week i think it's going to do very good business but you're not going to get that much out of Stipe Miocic. he's never been interested in any of the promotion or the fame that comes along with this Stipe yeah. was referred to as the greatest heavyweight in mma history multiple times by John Jones. Stipe never referred to himself as that. It was Jones. Dude, Jones understands what he is doing here and selling uh, the, the, this fight. Um, I thought Jones did a terrific job of setting up this fight, which which will be a great fight. I am. It is the fight to make 100%. But just Stipe, just turn it up to a three. That's all I'm asking for here. Um, this man had no interest in being interviewed or even being on camera, it, it appeared, which uh, more power to you if you if you don't want to. But that is a big part of wh- when you're at this level and being a headliner and being called upon for these big fights. But it will be interesting after, you know, you look at Stipe Miocic and I think John Jones will be heavily favored justifiably in that fight. Given just where Stipe is now and, and for a lot of, a lot of tangible reasons. And then you're looking at the level of your Sergei Pavlovich's, Curtis Blades, Romanov. I mean, it's, if you're John Jones, you are looking for the biggest fights. And I think you beat a Stipe Miocic. It is going to once again rehash the name of Francis Ngannou. Like that to me represents the biggest fight you could do. Outside of a, if a Brock Lesnar could get into a time machine and go back five years, which I, I do not see happening. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think Brock's jumping in that time machine anytime soon. I, I think Stipe Miocic is the lone big name opponent at light heavyweights or heavyweights for John Jones in the UFC. I don't think there are a lot of stars in either of those divisions. Not a lot of people who will move pay-per-view buys. Sergey Pavlovich, does he have a fight? right now scheduled off the top of your head um he's been him and curtis blades i believe are supposed to fight in april if he gets a big knockout win over curtis blades i think people could be interested in pavlovich versus jones just because pavlovich has looked uh phenomenal through his last few fights just blitzing through opponents over and over again uh in the back of my mind i always remember old alistair over him just taking him down and finishing him in a couple minutes so i i would favor jones in that one too but maybe i could see that fight uh there's just not a lot of appetizing options honestly well jones was asked about Francis Ngannou at the post-fight press conference because Ngannou had a tweet after the performance so here is that tweet and Jones' response. Francis tweeted, uh, good job, Johnny Boy, sincerely the heavyweight king. Uh, do you have a response to Francis Ngannou referring himself? Francis is a big old pussy. I love that quote. I love it. All that muscle with a big-ass pussy. Excuse me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Francis. Also adding to that was right before that tweet is read to him he's explaining how i'm a new man i am i've surrounded myself with positive people i'm just i'm just on you know a path of just positivity and then boom he sent a tweet and it's just man f this guy (laughs) i like i don't know how the, the john jones nice guy act i feel like we're 10 years past buying any of that under any circumstance ever it's uh it's a bit much yes so that to me is still like a monster fight for them. But the UFC is in a situation where I, I don't think that they have to bend over backwards for anyone. What's interesting is that Francis Ngannou, like where, 
where his name is going to be in several months and if he gets this big boxing fight. Um, because, yes, everyone, the narrative now is that uh, Francis Ngani was scared. That's that's why he left. He is so scared that he's going to go into a sport he's never competed in and he's courting fights with uh, Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder because he's so scared to compete in the sport that he left as its top heavyweight. He's scared. The absolute coward Francis Ngannou, uh, known for fighting with a very uh, frightened style. Um, No, it's ridiculous. And the UFC will push whatever narratives they want. And the UFC has a fan base of people who will believe anything that the UFC tells them. So they know how to do their thing. Are you shutting the door on that fight? I am not. I think that there will... Ultimately, when there is so much money to be made, I think a Jones and Ganu fight, it represents to me the biggest fight you can make for John Jones. And for that reason, I'm not going to shut the door on that one completely. No, I mean, it feels like Francis Ngannou is still trying to build to the fight. So I don't think he's even closing the door on the prospect of this being a, a fight in the near future for him. But uh, uh, again, like I said earlier, the, the Miocic-Jones fight, I think that will dictate a lot of what to expect from John Jones's future after the fact, uh, regardless of the result. Well, we are 20 minutes into the show discussing a two-minute fight, so we are going to move on at this point because there were some very uh, notable outcomes on this main card, including Alexa Grasso ending the long UFC flyweight championship reign of Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, this fight saw first round for Alexa Grasso where you saw her able to connect with her left hand, including one that just landed flush on Shevchenko and followed with several elbows and towards the end, Grasso did get a brief takedown. In the second, it was Shevchenko going to her wrestling, taking her down, moving to side control and later getting a body lock takedown. And into the third we go. And this was another Shevchenko round where she did this level change with just with the ease of which she took Grasso down. You started to think this is going to be Shevchenko's game plan of just take her down, control her on top, use her weight. And Jason Herzog actually stood them up as Shevchenko was working in Grasso's guard. Crowd was not happy with this. And we need to do a segment where we go Joe Rogan's pet peeves. On this show, it was uh, fighters wearing shorts and stand-ups. Man hates stand-ups, as we have learned over the years. But tonight, that one... You can always hear, feel like the trigger points for a Joe Rogan. And tonight, those stand-ups, I hate them. I hate them all. I hate them. I feel like you can copy and paste the one Joe Rogan line over every stand-up in the history of, of the sport, really. And uh, it would sound exactly the same. And, and he's not wrong in this case. I thought this was a pretty egregiously bad stand-up, in all honesty. Well, Shevchenko won the round. Uh, she got another takedown near the end of the round. And then we go to round number four. So it looks like... Shevchenko is up 2-1 on most people's cards. And Grosso stuffs an early takedown attempt. And Shevchenko is starting to have some timing issues with the takedowns that Grosso seems to have figured out. So Shevchenko goes for something that she is going to be questioning herself as much as Chris Weidman did in 2015 with Luke Rockhold. She went for a spin kick. And with that, Grosso, dude, was on her like glue, on her back. A seamless move to the back, taking Shevchenko down and locking in a tight rear naked choke. And Shevchenko, you can just see the title reign exiting her pores. She knows it is over and she has to tap as she can no longer fight this choke. Four minutes, 34 seconds of the fourth round. Alexa Grosso. Who was, uh, apparently Grosso winning by submission was as high as a plus 2,500 prop bet. Um, I don't know how many people, uh, went on that one, but Alexa Grosso is your new UFC flyweight champion, a result I did not think I would be repeating on this show, Eric. No, I'll, I'll be honest. I counted her out going into this fight. I, I didn't think this was a very interesting matchup stylistically. And from honestly, from the first round onwards, Grasso put up a better fight than I thought. She was clearly making Shevchenko a bit uncomfortable on the feet, landing some hard right hands whenever they had exchanged in the pocket, which was prompting Shevchenko to grapple so much. And yeah, the fight was starting to turn in Shevchenko's favor. I had her up on the scorecards before the finish. But going into that fourth round, Grasso is starting to stuff a lot of those attempts. And eventually, yeah, Shevchenko goes for that spinning back kick. She hesitates a bit after she misses it. And that's all it took for Grasso to jump up there and uh, get the rear naked choke finish. Yeah, this was, um, you know, just looking at, at some of the, the stats in this fight. I mean, Alexa Grasso 
only landing like 32% of the significant strikes thrown compared to 60% for Valentina Shevchenko. Um, but attack the body, attack the leg. Uh, but that was the key was at the end was just that opening that Shevchenko left her just for a split second with the spinning kick attempt and Grosso. That was the, and she stated afterwards the fact that that was something that her team had drilled in on. That if she goes for a spinning back kick, they know that that is an opportunity for them and seized it here. It's a big deal for, um, for the UFC in Mexico. This is now their third champion that they have, uh, alongside Brandon Moreno and then interim champion Yair Rodriguez. And it would seem likely that Valentina Shevchenko gets that automatic rematch, which would, kind of put Aaron Blanchfield to the side as she seemed to be, in my mind, the next contender. But I would think that they go to, to the rematch here. Um, 100%. I'd be shocked if they did anything else. Perhaps you could run back the uh, initially planned matchup between Blanchfield and Talia Santos, who, of course, uh, took Shevchenko to a split decision and Shevchenko's previous bout. But I would be shocked if they did anything other than Grasso Shevchenko too coming out of this. Uh, Shevchenko, if she would have won this fight, it would have been her eighth consecutive title defense, which is extremely impressive. So that, that's the kind of reign where they typically give the champion that immediate rematch after the loss. Where do you see Valentina Shevchenko at this point? Like, do you look at the Talia Santos fight any differently now after seeing this performance? And do you think that Shevchenko is? You know, this is this is someone that has had such a dominant run, and now we have seen her look very vulnerable in the Santos fight and then outright beaten in this one. Um, it's certainly possible that she's starting to slow down. She's been in combat sports for a very long time. But uh, with, with that being said, I didn't look at either of her performances as uh, poor in, in the sense that I'd be concerned about her not still being perhaps at the top of the flyweight uh, division in terms of talent. And I think we saw John Jones as an example of a guy who, in his previous two bouts before this one, I thought he looked very unimpressive in both of them. And then he came back, made some adjustments, uh, moved up in weight, and he got a nice quick finish. Everyone's back on the train. So perhaps that will be what Shevchenko can do as well. If she doesn't want us to grant a flyweight, bantamweight's always there. Yeah, this was a, it was a huge upset. I would not go as far as to say the biggest upset that we have ever seen. There have been bigger ones, but th- this would be up there especially when it comes to championship fights. Yeah, and it feels like we've seen a, a lot of these big upsets in recent years. Uh, we had Juliana Pena taking out Amanda Nunes, of course, lost the rematch. We recently had Edwards beating Kamaru Usman, uh, Alex Pierre being Israel Adesanya. God. We could see Bruce all Pacheco of these upsets. Beating Kayla Harrison. Tons of fun That's stuff right. in this last year, keeping the sport exciting. It's possible we could see all of those upsets avenged within a one year period if we get uh like Harrison and Pacheco, I would I would certainly favor Harrison in in the rematch. And if this fight if this rematch occurs though, I, I feel Alexa Grasso is a much um a much more safer pick in in the rematch. I would not be uh so quick to just automatically assume Shevchenko would win the rematch. I, I think I saw enough from Shevchenko throughout this fight that I would favor her significantly going into uh, another fight. Uh, I thought she was really starting to take control of the fight prior to the finish. But with that being said, the odds will certainly be a lot closer for the for their rematch than they were for this fight. Yeah, and Dana White was very, very high on like what they're doing in Mexico now with getting a, a performance institute up and running there. Now with these three champions, it seems, and that has always been a huge market that the UFC has wanted to cultivate, and it's taken them uh, throughout the run of Zufa and now Endeavor to really get those inroads, and now you're seeing it start to bear fruit with these champions that are uh, popping up. So it would seem likely that a big card you could take there uh, with any one of these champions, if not two title fights uh, at some point. Perhaps like a Volkanovsky-Yair-Rodriguez fight would work great in in Mexico, for instance. Shavkat Rachmanov and Jeff Neal. This was a big, big fight for uh, Shavkat Rachmanov, who was 16-0 and coming into this fight. Uh, all stoppages. He has been on a tear in the UFC's welterweight division and uh, coming off the win against Neil Magny. Back in June of last year, Jeff Neal missed weight by four pounds. He came in at 175 pounds, which is a gigantic miss at welterweight. 
a very rough miss for Jeff Neal, who, I mean, this isn't a guy who ever really misses weight. This is not a theme for him. So there's a lot of speculation whether something may have been wrong for him going into this fight, perhaps an injury of sorts. Very possible. It's like to miss by four pounds. Like that's a pretty significant miss that, you know, they were openly speculating on the broadcast could have been indicative of some kind of injury. But I mean, this was a fight that I, you know, had this gone the full distance, it was like Rachmanov was winning all three of these rounds, but Jeff Neal was very much in this fight, and it was an excellent fight. Neal is using his boxing early on, and then we get our our hilarious moment of the night where Rachmanov loses his mouthpiece. And like Joe Rogan is someone when he zeroes in on something, the rest of the world stops while this issue is at hand. And Rogan can't get over that Herb Dean has not spotted the mouthpiece. And it gets to the point that Rogan takes off his headset and he's yelling at Herb Dean, the mouthpiece, the mouthpiece. He's worried Herb Dean's going to stand on it. So finally, Herb Dean gets Rachmanov's mouthpiece and gets it back on. You would have thought that this was a crisis for Joe Rogan, that Rachmanov get this mouthpiece back in. Very important. But my God, Joe Rogan, he was like ready to stop this fight until this this injustice was uh, corrected. It was so funny hearing Joe Rogan just absolutely losing his mind. This was an eventful period of the fight, too. These guys were swinging at each other, but it didn't matter because Rachmanov's mouthpiece was out, and this was the only thing Joe Rogan could focus on. Uh, you know, the best part would have been when, when Herb Dean was finally notified the mouthpiece was gone. He still didn't know exactly where it was, so he basically had to like go on a search around the cage to finally find the mouthpiece. And wait, who does this actually belong to? He wasn't sure whose whose mouthpiece it was. It was uh, comedy gold. So Rachmanov tags him with a, a head kick in the opening round. Neil is cut and uh, each landing big shots towards the end of the round into the second uh, Rachmanov. He is just starting to rack up shots to the body. I mean, he the, the body shots have been key for Shavkat Rachmanov in all of his fights. And when you look at this. In this fight, Rachmanov outlanded him 39 to 4 with body shots. And I mean, Jeff Neal, he was incredibly durable to withstand this. Uh, Neal's with, he's essentially relying on his hands. It's a, it's a boxer against a multi-tooled kickboxer here in Shavkat Rachmanov, who answers with right hands, always going back to the body and constantly mixing it up. So Jeff Neal can't get any solid reads on what's coming. Third round, uh, Rachmanov turns it up uh, a notch in this one. Stunning Neil with a right hand and it follows with a knee to the face. And he's lighting him up with elbows against a cage, more knees to the body. And he pins Neil against the fence. There's a minute to go. And all of a sudden, Shavkat Rachmanov, you think he's going for the million-dollar dream here. He's got a standing choke while he wraps his leg around Neil's. And he gets the standing rear naked choke at 417 of the third round. This Shavkat Rachmanov, what a, this guy was already, um, a very impressive fighter, but this to me was the big spotlight fight for him to catapult up the rankings. He was number uh, nine coming into this fight. Uh, Neil was seventh and dude, Rachmanov is stating, I'm ready for a title fight now. There were, there were, was no argument for me after watching this performance. Now, Shavkat Rachmanov officially surged from the rank of a prospect to a legitimate contender, someone who could totally fight for a title in his next fight, if not a number one contender's fight at the very least. Uh, this guy's an incredible fighter. He's had 17 pro fights, and he's finished all 17 of his performances. This was far and away the most competitive fight he's ever had. Like, this was a war. Don't get me wrong. Rachmanov won every round, but Neil was hitting him with bombs that would have felled any other fighter in the division but apparently Shavkat Rachmanov also has a chin of absolute steel so uh, this guy is just so entertaining he's dangerous and he's a tremendously talented fighter uh the sky's the limit for this guy yeah he, when you look at who's in the division and the two scenarios he laid out were fighting for the title, or he would like to fight Colby Covington, which is a great option as well. I think you could go with either of those. But just looking at who's ranked ahead of him, like Vicente Luque, Sean Brady, Stephen Thompson, Gilbert Burns, Bilal Muhammad, you know, Chemayev is likely moving up a weight class. And then you've got Colby and Kamaru. Like, he is going to be, to me, um, above those first couple of names. I think he's going for a top three at worst top four opponent. And I think he's going to jump significantly up in the rankings that um, if he were to get the next title fight, I, I think he has as much claim as anyone to being uh, the claimant to the winner of uh, the Usman Edwards rematch. 
I think aside from perhaps the top three, uh, four on Kachimaya fighters in the division, he would be a decent betting favorite against each of those fighters. Uh, I was super high on this guy from his first fight in the promotion. And at this point, it feels like I, I want to see him fight the best in the world. I want to see him in a five round setting. Uh, it's like, I, I don't even know what more to say. This guy's awesome. Would you purchase one of his, um, his, uh, bear hats that he wears afterwards that he gave, uh, he gave gifts to. He gave one to Rogan. I think he gave one to Laura Sanko afterward. I think they could start marketing these. Maybe Venom will get a, a sponsorship deal with him. A Venom, uh, I, I don't know how, what the headdress would be called, but I, I would like to see the Venom styled version of it. Uh, Venom styled everything, actually. Yeah. I mean, John Jones is going to be the story of this card, but in many ways, it was of a, of a guy just propelling, um, his, his standing. Shop, Shavkat Rachmanov was 1B if John Jones was 1A on this card. I just thought this, and, and this was a great fight. Jeff Neal, this was so impressive that Dana White said they broke their rule, uh, by giving the bonus to these two for fight of the night, even though Jeff Neal missed weight, which they never, that's typically what happens is you miss weight. You are not eligible for a fight night bonus, but he was, Dana was uh, blown away by this fight. Uh, was this your fight of the night? Oh, easy. I didn't think anything came close to touching this. This was a like spectacular brawl. It kind of reminded me of the Chimaya versus Burns fight from last year. Uh, and kind of in a similar setting where you have one of the mainstays of the division uh, defending his spot against one of your top contenders on the rise and then turns into this absolute brawl. Uh, Rachmanov, of course, got the finish here, but uh, e- easy fight of the night. And I'm, I'm glad they broke their rule because Jeff Neal deserved it for this uh, absolute war. We go to the lightweight division, uh, Matush Gamrot against Jalen Turner. So, uh, Gamrot was a relatively late replacement, uh, just jumping into the fire here with, uh, Jay- with Jalen Turner, who was coming in with five straight wins, all stoppages, um, and recently stopping, uh, Jamie Malarkey and Brad Riddell last year. So in the first round, this was a very close round. Gamrot is using low kicks and then shoots and gets the takedown. And this is where Joe Rogan talks about, Turner's shorts coming below below his below his ass and that should wear tights should wear tights when you're in when you're in the cage because this can be a real detriment when you're taken down and you got to deal with, with shorts that are going below your waist. I this is a new one. I don't think we've heard. Yeah, Joe Rogan. <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah, it was a new rant. Yeah. I didn't think we, we haven't got any new before. rants like, left in him. Yeah, like the cups, uh, like the diamond MMA cups. Like we, we've heard all the greatest hits, and this was a brand new single from Joe Rogan: shorts uh, versus tights. Um, Turner does get a knockdown in this round, and might have been enough to swing it for him. Um, he swings, and uh, Gamrod emerges on top in half guard. Um, so I, I thought this was a fairly close round, but I did lean towards Turner. Uh, Gamrod in the second. Um, th- this was a very good round for him. Turner gets a combination going for a takedown, and then Gamrod lands with a right hand. Turner with one of his own, and then Gamrod uh, gets a takedown and gets to the crucifix position and is landing strikes as the round ends. So into the third, uh, Jalen Turner's corner is telling him he's down two nothing. So this is this was not an overly optimistic corner for Jalen Turner. They're like, dude, you got to finish this. Uh, Gamrock gets to take down and the referee separates them at one point from the clinch against the fence. And Joe Rogan, you could uh, imagine how much he loved this. Turner lands a shot, defends a takedown, and then it's Gamrot going for the single leg, and Turner jumps in the air for a knee, and this gives Gamrot control of the waist, holding Turner against the fence, and gets him down, and actually lands in mount, and lands several strikes to end the fight, and Matush Gamrot gets the split decision win, 30-27, 29-28, and one judge having it 29-28 for Turner. My score was 29-28 for Gamrot. Yourself, Eric? I also scored the fight 29-28 for Gamrot, but I thought this was an unbelievably close fight. In fact, I yeah. think you can make a compelling case for each round to either fighter. Um, Jalen Turner was, he's a very dangerous fighter. He hits very hard and he has good timing on the feet. And you saw every time he touched Gamrot, it felt as though he was getting a big reaction out of Gamrot. Gamrot, on the other hand, was doing his best to attack the lead leg of Turner and eventually secured his takedowns where he would get a decent amount of control time throughout each round and did rounds. It was it was a very close fight. I, I wouldn't disagree with anybody who saw it for Turner instead. 
And then Gamrot was asked, what's next for you? And a man who has his priorities in order, he said, what's next for me? A holiday with my family. And then I would like a top five opponent. So bravo to uh, Matush Gamrot, who improves to 22-2 with a no contest on his record and uh, beating a very game Jalen Turner, who um, is is certainly somebody to watch. This is a very close fight and... uh, yeah, a very good win for Matush Gamrot. Opening up the main card was uh, one of the featured names on this card, Bo Nickel, three-time national champion at a Penn State. And he came onto the scene uh, two fights on Dana White's Contender Series last year. He had a total of two minutes and 27 seconds of fight time coming into this and made fairly short work out of Jamie Pickett. And Nickel was a minus 1,800 favorite on this card. And Nickel throws a high kick out of the gate, and then he gets an underhook, and he is going for a takedown against the the cage um, that is defended. And from there, he throws a knee, and this was the source of controversy for many, where it looked like he nailed him right in the groin, and this would set up a darts attempt by Nickel before getting Pickett to the ground, of which he started to work for an arm triangle from half guard, so he didn't have it fully applied correctly, but ended up mounting him and getting the arm triangle submission. So this guy, ultra strong, uh, evidently, and submits Jamie Pickett at 254 of the first round. Now, afterwards... Jamie Pickett's um, team is apparently going to file an appeal with the Nevada Commission uh, to overturn this to a no contest. They will have no success in overturning this to a no contest. Uh, but their belief was that it was a shot to the groin. And Bo Nickel is disputing this. He thinks that it was uh, that he did not hit him in the groin. And he said that um, I hit him in the leg or in the thigh. And if he had actually hit him in the groin, he would have felt really bad because he is not a cheater. So Bo Nichols disputing that it was a a low shot. But nonetheless, that was brought up by a lot of people. You can try and appeal this. That's great. But like, there's no prayer that Nevada is overturning this. A Bo Nickel could have brought a knife into the cage and stabbed Jamie Pickett. And the commission would not overturn the results. So... There isn't a prayer that he's getting that one flipped, even if it's deserved, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, I don't know quite what to say about this. This was the expected results of this fight. Uh, Bo Nickel has all of the potential in the world. Obviously, he's a very accomplished wrestler, and he's going to be miles above everybody in that category. But he, he appears to have like legitimate power on the feet as well, which will make him a legitimate threat when when he's standing with opponents. This what like this fight against Jamie Pickett was, with all due respect, a bit of a gimme. So I'm not gonna make too much of this particular performance, but I can't wait to see his next fight. He's not getting a title fight next because that's that's the speculation. I see. It's like we get so ahead of ourselves on you know performers like that. And listen, Bo Nickel. There's a lot of reasons to be very high on him. Um, just not only the the, the wrestling background, but his transition to like there for a guy four fights in, you don't see any of that hesitancy when it comes to adapting to submissions and capitalizing. But let's. Let's realize like where Jamie Pickett is in the grand scheme of things. Like certainly Bo Nickel is being fast tracked, but like this guy should not be fighting a top five opponent next. I think you want to, but it's also like where, where do you put him when you're introducing him on a pay per view main card? And there is going to be that, that temptation to put him against a, a very significant opponent at 185 pounds. Interestingly, there's a very direct comparison to the division's current champion, Alex Pierre, someone who was also fast-tracked to the very top of the division, uh, won the title in like his third fight in the UFC because of his accomplishments in another sport. I, I, I think it's impossible. We'll see, see the same thing with Bo Nickel. And honestly, if Bo Nickel fought Alex Pierre tomorrow, Bo Nickel might be the favorite. That's not crazy. <laughs> It's it's a wild time. Maybe the first time since Michael Bisping was middleweight champion where you look at... <laughs> Like, there are so many contenders that I would favor over Alex Pereira. Not to say Pereira couldn't beat them also, but, like, like that I would not favor against a Robert Whitaker, that I would not favor against Israel Adesanya, but I would against Alex Pereira. And Bo Nickel, I don't know if I would necessarily pick Nickel, but could he beat Alex Pereira? Absolutely, he could. Exactly. The division's in such a strange place right now where it has this champion who is knocking everybody out cold in spectacular fashion. And I'm not taking anything away from him, but he is very beatable. 
and he can be very beatable by someone who's perhaps not even an elite middleweight. Uh, really fun time at 185. All right, let's uh, quickly go through the prelims. Cody Garbrandt was back uh, taking on Trevin Jones. And I guess the most noteworthy uh, piece of news coming out of this is that the man was training during the day and in his last uh, warm-up around noon suffered a stinger and <laughs> apparently like had numbness in his arm that just never corrected itself throughout the day. So... I mean, by all logic, this guy should not have been fighting, but here is someone that has not fought throughout all of 2022, and his back was against the wall here. He is 1-5 since 2017. To say this guy was in a must-win situation was completely accurate, but he went out. This was not a great fight. Um, Joe Rogan was seeing uh, a level of Garbrandt that, listen, he, he had a much more disciplined style. This was not Cody Garbrandt, just... Uh, coming out and throwing bombs at the first sign of a brawl. But, you know, to, to state that this guy looks like a world champion, I did not have that conclusion that Joe Rogan did. But uh, Garbrandt won two of the three rounds, just being a, a superior striker and using several takedowns. And in the third, though, it was uh, Trevin Jones who, and by the third round, he had landed eight strikes on Garbrandt throughout this fight. Eight strikes. But then... uh it's Jones that gets a takedown and ends up landing several big shots to win the final round. And Garbrandt got the decision 29-28 across the board. So Garbrandt gets a much-needed win. And you can certainly question uh, whether he should have been fighting, but does pull out the win. Oh, this fight was absolutely brutal. I, I almost never say that about bantamweight fights. It's the, maybe the most exciting division in the sport, but this fight was an absolute slog. Trevin Jones basically didn't even attempt anything offensively for the first 13 minutes of the fight. Uh, Garbrandt did enough to stay in front of him uh, up on the scorecards, so props to him. That's exactly what he needed. But the fact that the second Trevin Jones actually tried to do something in round three, he succeeded. I feel like that's not a great sign for Cody Gar Garbrandt either. And I, I definitely wasn't coming away from this like Joe Rogan saying this is the best 135er in the world. Uh, I thought this was a very bad fight. Yeah, it, it's one where I don't know if you give a mulligan here, given the circumstances that Garbrandt was dealing with. But I, I still have questions about Garbrandt at, at bantamweight. I, I certainly feel bantamweight is a much better fit for him than what he was trying at flyweight. But it's it's going to be his next fight that we get a better sense of, of where he's at, because if all things were equal and, you know, you're, you're struggling in a round with, with Trevin Jones, like that is that is indicative of where you are at as well. So next fight will be. At least he is going to guarantee another fight. A loss here, I could not have said that 100% sure that he gets another fight in the UFC. Derek Brunson against Drickus Duplessis in the first round. Uh, Brunson just caught a leg and put him down into side control. And it was uh, Derek Brunson out-wrestling him in the first round and later applying a rear naked choke against the fence, uh, but not in a great position. Very strong round for him. The second round... Brunson has uh, definitely gotten more tired, but so is Duplessis. They are both exhausted here. Uh, Duplessis is going to the body. Each is landing because there is minimal defense being put up by either fighter. And uh, Duplessis gets a takedown. They're both continually exhausted here. And Duplessis drops a big left hand. And he's got the most tired overhands that he's just dropping on Brunson. <laughs> but then he nails Brunson with this brutal left hand and his corner throws in the towel and it's called off at 459 of the second round. God bless his corner because this was an absolutely brutal beating that Brunson was taking at the end. And I applaud uh, more towels being thrown in for fighters instead of just letting these guys die on their shield. And I like the fact that Dana uh, applauded this move as well because in this system where a lot of these guys, they have a, a win bonus tied to how much money they can make. It leads to guys taking prolonged beatings that they shouldn't be. And I was happy to see this uh, rare act displayed in MMA because uh, Brunson took a lot of damage. And Drickus Duplessis gets the victory. He is now 5-0 and in the UFC and has won seven straight fights. Yeah, this was like... This was like the entertaining version of the previous fight in the sense that I don't think I felt very good. It was really fun. It was a wild, strange brawl. Just kind of like, 
as you would expect in a fight between Driscus Duplessis and uh, Duplessis and Derek Brunson. Brunson kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but he retired after his last fight, right? Oh, that's right. I can't remember the exact scenario. It's man, my my MMA retirements uh, recall yeah, are, are, are tough, Eric. It's it's tough. Clearly, I'm in the same boat, but I do think he called it quits after his last one. And this was kind of his return thing. And after he lost this one, his Twitter statements seem to indicate he's thinking about retiring again. If that is the case, I I fully support that. He's had a long career. He's been very good for a very long time, and he's typically been a very fun fighter, but. Man, when he gets finished, it feels like he takes so much damage every single time. I do hope this was his final octagon outing. And it was blonde Derek Brunson losing too, which is, you know, that that's a sign. <laughs> that's how you know it's over. Yes. Uh, the comment was uh, from Derek Brunson. Thanks for all who watched my career. Crazy fight tonight. My corner de- decided to stop it uh, after the second round. Congrats to my opponent. So I don't know what to take from that. It seems like he uh, he would have been happy to keep going. But um, I thought his corner made the right call. And Derek Brunson's 39. And, you know, if um, if retirement is on the horizon, um, it wouldn't be the uh, the worst call to be making. Like at a certain point, you're looking at am I am I going to get that that title opportunity? And if not, what am I fighting for? And if all you're talking about is a paycheck, I think that's a tough uh, reason to be sticking around with such a brutal sport. And I would say Brunson, he's flirted with that top end of the middleweight division, but I would say it's pretty safe at this point. He is not going to get to that that championship level at middleweight. No, he's had a, a very solid run. He spent like practically a decade as uh, basically the gatekeeper for the middleweight division. If you could beat Derek Brunson, you're probably going to go on to be the division's champion. If not, well, that's your place in the division. He was a very solid fighter, a great wrestler, really talented wrestler with serious knockout power, but was never quite at the level of the likes of, say, Jacare Souza, Robert Whitaker, Yo Romero, etc. In the women's flyweight division, Vivian Araujo against Amanda Hibas. The first round, close round between the two, uh, with uh, Araujo having the best round on her feet uh, against uh, Hibas, uh, including a tight guillotine that, that she was able to apply, but Hibas slipped out of that, and then it was Araujo using her boxing, and I thought getting the better strikes in this round, but close. You could go either way. The second was all Hibas, who stunned Araujo. She goes down, and she gets on top of her with hammer fists, and maintains the position, and then opens up, starts landing heavier shots, and Hibas gets her hooks in, and controls Araujo for the full round. I went 10-8 on this, and it was actually, I was pleasantly surprised. There were a fair amount of 10-8s on this card compared to usual UFCs where it seemed like 10-8s have been outlawed. And I don't even know at this point like what your criteria is because we went from more liberal use to we never use 10-8s. So now I subscribe to the Pollock scoring system. So if I feel it's a 10-8, I'm going 10-8, Eric, whether the judges are going to agree with me or not. But we did get several uh we got two judges that uh, gave 10-8 rounds in this one. And so did I. I, I thought this warranted a 10-8 round as well. Okay. Use a, you know, Phil, you, you pretty much needed a machine gun for Phil to go 10-8. <laughs> so um, third round we go, and uh, He-Boss is looking good on her feet at this point, and she's uh, attacking with leg kicks, lands with a head kick, and then she's tagging her, gets to take down. Arujo tries for an arm bar, but Hibas is out of danger and ends the round with hammer fists. So I had it 29-27. One judge had it, the same as me, and the other two, 30-26, 30-27. Amanda Hibas gets the W and wants a top five opponent at straw at, at flyweight or fighting Carla Sparza at strawweight, which is the division that she is ranked in. So we will see. She's open, I guess, to fighting at 125 or 115. So she had... These fighters are getting savvy now. They come up with a plan B and a plan A uh, when they're asked, what do you want next? That, that is interesting that she's open to keep it to the, to the two divisions because on one hand, that keeps your options open. But I'm also thinking about Jessica Andrade, who's kind of been flirting that line between strawweight and flyweight for a while. And as a result didn't become the top contender in either division because she didn't stick to one. So uh, I'm interested to see if that's a case that will repeat itself over time. Perhaps Rebus isn't going to be that fighter who ascends to the very top of either division, but 
I'm interested to see more fighters who are going back and forth, uh, fight to fight in, in the near future. And the, uh, the televised prelims opened up with Julian Marquez against Mark Andre Barrio. The, as John Anik referred to him as the competent Canadian taking on the Cuban Missile Crisis. That sounds like a bit of a mismatch, doesn't it? Yes. Well, the, uh, the competent Canadian here, the power bar, Mark Andre Barrio. This was not looking great for him in the first round. Uh, I don't know what was more, uh, uh, stunning on, on this card. The fact that we got, um, uh, John Jones blitzing through an elite level heavyweight or the fact that James Krause's name was mentioned on the broadcast here when it comes to Julian Marquez leaving James Krause and now with Factory X under Mark Montoya. Oh, you're allowed to say that people have left James Krause or that people have denounced James Krause. That, that's the only way uh, his name could be mentioned. He ranks just above Francis Ngannou. That's about it. Yes. Uh, so, uh, first round, dude, Marquez looked really good in this first round with his combinations, jabs to set up the uppercuts and burial was like covering up. Marquez goes to the body. He's loading up with right hands. Great combination near the end of the round. I thought this was a great round from Marquez. Then the second round, what a turnaround. And it's, Barrio, who gets his second wind and connects with a left hook, and he's putting pressure onto Marquez, and he's just landing tons of blows on him. Marquez is a lot less disciplined. He's just throwing wildly at this point. Barrio is the fresher of the two, and he starts unloading against the fence. And I'm thinking that referee Mark Smith was waiting for uh, Phil Chertok to pass that machine gun over to finish Julian Marquez because, dude, the mouthpiece drops from Marquez. And Marquez just gets annihilated by shots here. He's landing elbows, uppercuts. Marquez is covering up. And dude, Burial's like, what more do I have to do here? Finally, Mark Smith steps in at 412 of the second round. And dude, Mark Andre Barrio, um, God, gets the win here, but <laughs> it was like Julian Marquez. The announcer's just like, you gotta, you gotta kill Julian Marquez. I'm like, yeah. And if we don't stop this fight, you might do that. God, I, mean, I wanted listen, to throw the towel in here. Marquez is a very tough individual. He he never went down, but there was like oh. a, a minimum 90 seconds where Barrio just has this guy against the cage. He's hammering him in the head, undefended, over and over and over and over again. And you're sitting there as the viewer saying, when are they going to stop this? The, even the crowd, when the crowd starts saying like, oh, you should stop this. That's how you know it's absolutely brutal because these are... These are bloodthirsty people, but apparently not as bloodthirsty as Smith. He was uh, out of his mind on the stoppage. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Julian Marquez had a pulse at the end. So that was, uh, that was Mark Smith's, uh, checkup there. And, uh, Mark Andre Barrio improves to 15 and six with a no contest. And he, uh, he said, I'm more dangerous the longer the fight goes. Thus, I am the power bar and he deserves to be here. So there you go. The, uh, the Canadian hope, the competent Canadian, Mark Andre Barrio, waving the flag uh, for for Canada, and then we had uh, the the early prelims. I'll just go through the results, and then if you want to uh, chime in with any thoughts, we had uh, Ian Gary defeating Song Kanan by TKO at 4:22 of the third round. Not a seamless performance from Gary, but he overcame a first round that I thought he lost after uh, Kanan dropped him. Uh, but Gary came back to win the second and third rounds, and I think for him. It was actually good to have that adversity to come back from. Uh, but let, let's cool it on the fact that here's a prospect from Ireland that we have to just automatically assume is, uh, the next in waiting for, uh, Conor McGregor. Um, Cameron Simon against Mana Martinez. This poor Mana Martinez. First of all, the guy missed weight and then he took every foul imaginable in this fight. He got kicked in the groin twice. Uh, and got a point uh, deducted from Simon in the first round. So we got a 9-9 round, at least on uh, some of the judges' scorecards. Then this guy gets kicked in the balls towards the end of the fight. And uh, Cameron Simon, beyond the fouls, uh, looked really good. A lot, a lot of speed was demonstrated. Uh, he wins by majority decision 29-26, 28-27, and 28-28. So two judges gave the first round to Martinez, and two of them gave the third round 10-8 to Simon. So some more liberal scoring on this card. But, um, yeah, dude, uh, Mata Martinez, you could see by the time he got poked in the eye, he was over this. I mean, once you've been fouled brutally for the, the third time, I'd probably want to just get out of there, too. 
Uh, Jessica Penne was submitted by Tabitha Baby Shark Ricci. But I don't think she came out to Baby Shark. I wouldn't recognize if if I heard it, unfortunately. But uh, you would you're probably it. right. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's endearing if you are able to get into Baby Shark. Uh, but it, dude, Jessica Penne, you know, great grappler, but y- you've got to get your opponent to the ground to engage. And Jessica Penne, her game plan was just to like fight off her back and hopefully lure <laughs> Ricci into her guard. And Ricci was like, I'm just going to kick around at your legs. And then finally she goes down to the mat with her and instantly transitions to this slick arm bar and submits Jessica Penne. Like, okay, I'll play your game and I will also beat you at your game. Uh, not a great outing for Jessica Penne, who it, is now. F- yeah, go ahead, Eric. It, it was like watching the third round of a Damian Maya fight, except from the opening second, except he gets submitted at the end. Uh, this was a very poor performance with all due respect to Jessica Penne. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is the the end of the road for Jessica Penne in, in the UFC, but this was, you know, she's 40 now. It's it's another loss, and it was not a great performance by her. It just seemed like she did not want to engage on the feet with Ricci, but, you know, there's, you know, you, you can grapple, but you've got to get your opponent to the mat. It's like they're not going to volunteer to start the fight there. Uh, and then we had uh, Fareed Basharat winning by unanimous decision against Damon Blackshear, uh, 29-28 uh, across the board. And opening up the card was Loic Rajabov defeating Esteban Rebovics by unanimous decision, 29-28 from all three judges in the lightweight division. And that was UFC 285. Any other thoughts on the early prelims that stood out for you? Other than like we got a 40 minute gap between the last prelim bout and the televised prelims. That was the most memorable part of the prelims. Uh, the fact that they just raced through them in order to film the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal uh, fight right. scene. <laughs> yeah. That's right. They were filming uh, scenes from Roadhouse all weekend with Jake Gyllenhaal. And I guess Jay Huron uh, is, is part of it as well. And they had Jake Gyllenhaal do his own weigh-ins and then his mock uh, walkout and fight. And, of course, Conor McGregor's in the movie as well. So, um, yeah, I didn't even put that together that that's why they had the gap between that and the uh, – uh, the televised prelims and uh, now movie star Chris Tyone as the referee I believe great I'm I'm sure he's going to uh, maybe he'll get a, a SAG card with that um, you know and other fighters can get a, a Screen Actors Guild card health insurance I hope he gets top billing that would be great are you going to go see Roadhouse uh, I will not go see Roadhouse I'm not going to see any of these movies that the UFC advertises to me what were your final thoughts on the card? How did this one stack up for you? Um, I don't have a lot of complaints about the card. We got some big fights, some memorable moments. Joan Jones coming back and uh, his big win. Shevchenko finally losing her title here to Alex, uh, Gras- Alexa Grasso. And a very entertaining fight with Jeff Neal and Shavgar Rekmanov. The prelims were more stacked with big names than most preliminary cards are. So no complaints there either. Uh, the length of these cards is uh, a bit taxing at times when it's like 14 fights and we have two five rounders, but that's par for the course. So after the last two apex cards, which were, I think Eric can attest to, they were, they were a challenge at times. These were some of the weakest apex cards and that's saying a lot for like the depth of these apex cards, but those two were, were pretty damn thin. But the other side of that is, the next stretch we have, there's some pretty solid stuff coming up next weekend. Now, this is not the deepest card next weekend, but the main event is high quality with uh, Piotr Jan and Marab Dvalishvili in the bantamweight main event. Um, I, I, I think this is going to be an excellent fight at bantamweight. Um, I hope that the two don't just uh, cancel out one another and this becomes a, uh, a dull affair, but it's certainly very big stakes in arguably the deepest weight class that the UFC has. Yeah, that sounds like an absolutely awesome fight between two fighters who can really put a, put the pace on their opponents for five rounds. I don't even know who to favor in that, honestly, given their recent results. But that, that's a quality fight night main event, and we have uh, we have not got one of those in a long time. And the next time the two of us are going to be back is only two weeks from now with UFC 286 from the O2 Arena in London, England. And this is going to be great news for all of you viewers and listeners. It's a 5 p.m. Eastern main card on Saturday, March the 18th. So that means that Eric and I are going to be live Saturday night 
We are going to go live that evening, probably a half hour after the main card concludes. So you can look forward to that on the Saturday night, which is Leon Edwards defending the welterweight title against the man he beat last year for the title, Kamaru Usman. They they had a great trailer, I thought, for the for 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 the show, recapping the second fight that the two had uh, for the title. This will be their third fight in their career. This card also has uh, Rafael Fiziev against Justin Gaethje, Joanne Wood against Luana Carolina, Brian Barberina against Gunnar Nelson, and Roman Delodze versus Marvin Vittori on the main card. Uh, at the very least, the top two fights there. I, I very much <laughs> am looking forward to. <laughs> we got, we got yeah, so, some stuff here. It's, uh, it's not the greatest, uh, pay per view lineup here, but yes, the, the top two fights, I think we'll have a lot of interest. And beyond that, I mean, you have, uh, Marlon Vera and Corey Sanhagen coming up on March 25th. And then, uh, UFC 287 is April 8th with the, uh, Pereira Adesanya rematch and Gilbert Burns against, Poor Jorge Masvidal in Miami. I think that's going to be a very tough fight for Jorge Masvidal in his hometown. I'm thinking the same thing. I think it'll be more competitive than some people think, but I favor Burns as well. Man, that's three pay-per-views in about the span of a month. Uh, $80 a piece. They are really they are really uh, robbing us for everything we got. They're, they're, wow. they're coming fast and furious at, at everybody with these, these pay-per-view offerings over the next month. But everyone, that's why your post show, it is live, it is free, and coming at you after every one of these UFC shows. So I want to thank uh, the great Eric Marcotte for joining us. And we've got some super chats, which means Brandon from New Jersey, who writes, that Bo Nickel guy, more like a half dollar with the way he grapples, eh? Anywho, you got to get him now because he's totally going to run that division. Also, that Shavkot is good love his bouncer choke. Okay, uh, so some some grammar is being uh, uh greatly in in demand here, but yes, Shavkat is good, loves his bouncer choke. Okay, well, thank you, Brandon. We also have Brandon. <laughs> Feel bad for Jay Haran back in the UFC, and he got the Antonio McKee treatment, fair or unfair, jobbing like that. You know, <laughs> we we read these because Brandon is so kind to send us a. a, a super chat but uh thank you as always i think he just does this solely for eric marcotte's enjoyment and it's always some interesting spelling throughout too it's it's tough it's uh you know what time it is in new jersey it's um the exact same time that we are operating at as well so you got to give them that all right that's going to wrap it up for the ufc 285 post show eric uh where where can everyone follow all of your great work uh, you can follow me, uh, Eric Marcotte 705 on Twitter. You can come talk to me at postwrestling.com slash Discord, and all of my written work is on the Post Wrestling website. Will you be on the Discord tonight for Revolution? No, I got to go to work. Uh, oh. I might get home in time for the New Japan Cup card, but I'll be missing Revolution. Are you in the F1 Fantasy League? I am. I absolutely nothing but F1, but I said, fuck it. I'm going to join, and I'm going to win, so... Big race earlier today in uh, Bahrain, which uh, Way and I will talk about later this week, if you are so inclined. And uh, on that note, Way and I will be back late tonight with a Revolution post show. So, um, dude, that show will probably be ending by the time your work shift is done. That's how late Revolution might go. Who knows? Uh, but we will be live minutes after the pay-per-view concludes. YouTube.com slash post-wrestling. So right here, subscribe to the channel, and you will be... Turn on your notifications for the show. And also, this Tuesday, we're doing a live Ask Away Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern for all members at postwrestlingcafe.com. So if you want to be uh, joining us live, you can answer your questions in person. Uh, join us Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern time for a special live edition of the Mailbag Show. But that is it for us. For Eric, I am John, and thank you for watching the UFC 285 Post Show.